G'day, welcome along to another sermon from Good News Christian Church in Howrah, Tasmania, Australia. I'm Bernard Kane. I'm the pastor. Get in touch sometime at goodnewschristianchurch.org or why not come by one Sunday morning. For now, here's the sermon. John 13 is definitely the passage to have before you and it starts with this, doesn't it? It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Now, brothers and sisters and friends here and uh, and new friends here at Good News Church, uh, we've got this tradition at this time of year, and it's a tradition that I very much like, where we preach through one of the Gospels. Um, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke or John. There is only one gospel, but the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke um, or John from about now up through to Easter. That's what we do each year and we're um, continuing to do that. Um, Now, I personally really enjoy that tradition. Uh, I hope you do too. But more importantly, I reckon it's good for our souls actually to spend a bit of time in the gospels at this time of year, preaching through the stories of Jesus' life Um, It means that we're forced back to where it all began, the heart and the core of everything that we hold dear right at the start of our year. I think that is a good practice for us. Uh, Also, preaching through a gospel means that by the time that Easter rolls around, um, you know, early April, I think it is this year, isn't it? We have reimagined our portrait of Jesus very much in the Bible's own colours, just because we've spent the time in there in the stories, retelling it, which helps us to celebrate Easter, I think, then more intelligently, but just with greater depth of feeling and and a sense of reality, I think. I think it's good for us. Uh, But also, um, an extra factor, and especially if you're kind of new or new-ish with us here, I think it's a time for you to answer some of the questions that maybe you have about us as a church the kind of church that we are, the way that we see Jesus and what we make of him um, for our lives. So there's a few reasons to keep this tradition going. But why John 13? Um, Why this bit in particular? Well, two reasons. Last year, we left off at John 12. (laughs) So we'll step, you know, just one next passage. It's just kind of where we're up to. But also, happily, John 13, you almost couldn't pick a better spot to launch um, toward your run-up to Easter um, than John 13. John 13 is a massive hinge in John's Gospel. The whole story of Jesus' life, in a sense, turns on this chapter. Between chapter 12 and chapter 13, uh, the entire Gospel turns on it as the story hurtles now into the last 24 hours or so toward the glory of Jesus at the cross um, and beyond. Um, Take a look there. It was just before the Passover feast, that is to say... Less than 24 hours to live for Jesus now. Uh, Jesus knew, I'm in verse 1, that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. All right, but in the story, Jesus is the only one who knows that that's the case. He's been saying it all along, but in terms of what does that mean? It means that he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die for them. Well, he's the only one in the story who even gets that um, at this point. It gives it a real um, uh, urgency, but have a look at the sense of focus that that um, verse also gives us, having loved his own who were in the world. So having loved them all the last 12 chapters, having loved them till now, he now showed them the full extent of his love. So friends, this morning, let me say, over the next two months, would you like a firmer grasp 
of the full extent of Christ's love for you? Would you like a firmer grasp of the full extent of Christ's love for you? Then you've come to the right spot. If you desire to grasp the depth and the breadth and the meaning and the wonder of the love of Christ for you in this story of Jesus' life, if you would sensitively appreciate, um, just personally unlock and unpack all that he did and what it means for you in your life, you have come to the right place. Strap in, ladies and gentlemen. Um, Keep coming back over the next um, couple of months. Join us, please, every single week up to Easter. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent um, of his love. Could we please pray together as we come to this first instalment in what's going to be a series from John 13 to John 17. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we know that you are all wise, that you are all knowing. We know that Jesus Christ is the truth. We know that you, our wise God, our all-knowing God, you are never caught by surprise, that your plans come to pass. We know that even as Jesus approached his crucifixion and death, even the details, Father, were in your mind. Indeed, they were your design. Sadly, Father, we know that too often we are all too similar to those disciples. We don't get it. We miss the obvious. We inflate our view of ourselves. We don't understand. Or sometimes we do see it, but we fail to put into practice the obvious implications of what it is to follow after this Lord Jesus of ours. And so, Father, this morning, over these coming couple of months, would you please help us to grasp not simply the genius of your plan or the facts of your design, but may we come to terms with its full breadth as a story of your love, your grace, even a story, yes, of our sin and our worldliness. Father God, may your word transform minds to grasp the truth. May your word engage hearts with Christ's love, engage our hearts so that we learn to love. And may your word bend our wills so that body and soul we learn together in community to follow Jesus, the once dead but now risen King. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've got verse 1 there. Um, Come and take a look at the extent uh, of God's love. Verse 2 kind of has some more preliminaries, uh, but the real action takes place as Jesus picks himself up from the meal and everything that comes after that. Pick it up with me from verse 2, would you please? We're going to sort of read through some of the story, at least, this morning. Verse 2, the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he'd come from God and was returning to God. Here we are, verse 4, here comes the action. So he, Jesus, got up from the meal took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Let's just pause there. I mean, we're going to have to get ourselves into the story. We haven't been in John's Gospel recently, so we're going to have to reacquaint ourselves with the scene there. Now, admittedly, okay, let's cast our minds back. Admittedly, Peter 
uh, Simon Peter, he's usually the guy who puts his foot in it, isn't he? He just gets it famously wrong time and again. He's like that friend that you're delighted that you're their friend because they're always, they blurt stuff out, they do crazy things. You're delighted that you're their friend, but you're glad you're not them. Yeah, <laughs> Peter's that kind of friend usually, um, isn't he? What do you, but surely he hits the nail on the head here, doesn't he? With his, um, uh, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? What do you mean you're going to wash my feet? That ain't right, Jesus. You know, like when John the Baptist, remember back at the start of this gospel, uh, pipes up and says, look, I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus' shoes. Don't even let me near Jesus' feet. Great John the Baptist, prophet John the Baptist... Amazing, he shrank from going near Christ's feet, so great was the distance he saw it between him and Jesus. And now, with the tables turned, honour and glory, amazing Jesus, what does it say? Got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around him, which, by the way, that's slave clothes, in case you're wondering, that's kind of the the visual signal to the rest of the men around that meal. Slave clothes, wrapped a towel around his waist, sloshed, some water into, into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Friends, this is preposterous. This is completely unfitting. This is offensively improper. Like when you see, um, what is it like, kind of like in our setting, like when you see a man in a suit, say, walking along the street, uh, let's say a lawyer, perhaps, fresh from court, a man in a suit walking along the street, and what he, what's he doing? He's skipping actual skipping, like hand in hand with his little girl. Now, who should come out to meet him? Who is he confronted by? But his opposition, the lawyers for the prosecution. Now, you don't look so big now, do you? Or uh, what's another instance that gets something of it for us? You know uh, when you see those, the portaloos at, say, a festival or whatever, down at the Taste Festival or the, uh, the, um, the Falls Fe- a Music Festival, you know, with their, with their, I mean, they're, they're filthy, that's what they're there for. Uh, but then you see the people who clean those public toilets. Now, you and I, I'm guessing, we probably aren't lining up for that job because that's their job and we'll leave it to them And it's too gross and perhaps we feel, dare I say it, maybe it's a bit beneath us. Have a listen to this. Uh, A comment on the culture at the time of, of Jesus. Doubtless the disciples would have been happy to wash his feet. They could not conceive of washing one another's feet since this was a task normally reserved for the lowliest of menial servants. Peers did not wash one another's feet except very rarely and as a mark of great love. Some Jews, I didn't know this actually, some Jews insisted that Jewish slaves should not be required to wash the feet of others. This job should be reserved for Gentile slaves. It's remarkable. So slaves, sure, they can do the foot washing, but only the ones that you don't particularly like. Uh, Peers, forget it. All right, it's too demeaning. I'd wash your feet, mm, maybe if you had literally saved my life. Superiors? Never. Like, never. It would be a CEO washing the portaloos. Forget it. Never. Verse 6 Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part 
with me. What a statement. Peter had been with Jesus three years. They were close. They were tight. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. It's pretty clear, this, this foot washing, it's, it's, it's not just about the feet, is it? it's an emblem, it is a symbol. You ain't seen nothing yet, Peter. Remember verse 1, of course, he, he now showed them the full extent of his love. We're on a journey here, Peter. I'm going to show you what my love is all about, Peter. There is more to come. A foot spa ain't the real cleansing. This is an emblem of just how low I'm going to stoop. Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, verse 9, Simon Peter replied, he gets carried away, doesn't he? Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, a person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you. Folks, when Marion read it for us before, um, I wonder how many of us, you know, looking over John 13, I suspect many of you had a hunch that that was the text that I was going to be mostly working from. You're used to our traditions. We go through one of the Gospels at this time of year. I wonder how many of us were kind of emotionally preparing this morning for a sermon about how hard you ought to work at loving. Maybe you're picking up from some of those famous verses later on. We'll read those as well. You know, love one another like I've loved you that kind of thing. And we thought, okay, here it comes, we've really got to work hard at loving. Those unloving parts of me, they're going to get challenged today. How many of us were emotionally preparing for that sermon? Well, the thing is, true though those things may be and are, and we're going to be talking about that, are we hearing this, which comes first? You have no part with Jesus if you refuse to be washed. If Jesus could say it to Peter, his friend of three years, his close companion, he can say it to anyone. You have no part with Jesus if you refuse to be washed. Now, you may be great at washing others, (laughs) loving others, caring for others, serving, giving, helping, generous, whatever, but unless I wash you, verse 8, you have no part with me. So, May I appeal to you right now, whether you're nine years old or 89 years old, you'll find only one way to be a part with Jesus. And that's by being washed by him. When it comes to us and God, for every botched relationship in our lives, for every betrayed friend, every ruinous mess with a colleague that we get ourselves into from time to time, every loveless argument with our siblings... In our memory, every shirking responsibility to our parents, every cold shoulder that we've given to a stranger down the years, every simmering dagger that we've sort of thrown at the boss with our eyes, God sees the lot. And if we think that he'll sweep it under the carpet, you know, not to mention our attitude to him directly, then we've got another thing coming. Unless I wash you, Jesus says to Peter, you have no part with me. See, Christ washed the feet of ordinary sinful men as an emblem of the forgiveness that he extends even to them. Have you received it? Christ washed the feet of ordinary men as an emblem of your forgiven sin on account of his death for you. I'll show you the full extent of your love. He will stoop to wash the feet of anyone 
The question is, has he washed yours? And do you have a part with him? Come to Christ, friends, and leave all that behind. That's what Jesus is offering. Come to Christ. But, or rather, still, yet, further, um, turning now to you who already know Jesus as your Lord, your Saviour, your Teacher, your Master. Well, verse 12, come with me there. When he'd finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me Teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Uh, And brothers and sisters who have uh, been in the Lord for some years, perhaps don't we know the danger of self-delusion in that last verse? Uh, Don Carson reminds us, Um, of the danger lurking there in that verse for us established Christians. He says, there is a form of religious piety that utters a hearty amen to the most stringent demands of discipleship, but which rarely does anything about them. It's true, isn't it? Um, Now that you know these things, Jesus says, you'll be blessed if you do them. Will we do this kind of humble love for one another? Verse 35 Reminds us by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. What? If you love one another. Or to flip that around, if we don't love like Jesus, then why should anyone conclude that we really know him? Now, Peter, that means washing their feet. Now, never mind mine, you'd wash mine. I'm your Lord, wash theirs. Will you do that? is if we're not willing to stoop like Jesus stoops what is that saying dare we put ourselves above Jesus are we better than him is his pattern of service beneath us somehow um I don't know about you a phrase that escapes my lips sometimes and um I say it um to my shame um I wonder if you can relate to it a phrase that escapes my lips sometimes usually in frustration usually buoyed by a sense of um, entitlement is I shouldn't have to do that thing, whatever it is, fix that, clean that, say that for the hundredth time. I shouldn't have to do. Now Christians, here's the thing, as we learn to love like Jesus, how many things are beneath us really? I shouldn't have to do. As we learn to love like Jesus, my hunch is I shouldn't have to, I think we'll hear that less and less, won't we? Coming from our own lips. Because sure, maybe I shouldn't have to. Uh, Jesus didn't have to, but he was willing. Did he moan about it? No. Not only willingly, but lovingly, eagerly, because that is the beauty of Christ's love for us. How are we going at showing that to one another? But do you know what gets me in this passage, um, as, as hard-hitting as, as that is, and as I've been reflecting on that this week and failing and being reminded of it and all of that kind of thing, do you know what really gets me about this passage? Let me come at it like this. 
In this chapter, only two disciples are named. Um, oh, yeah, okay, I guess there is a third one, actually, although he's not actually named. John, the beloved disciple, you know, leaning up against Jesus in the little bit that we're about to read um, in just a moment. He's the one doing the writing of this gospel. Um, he's not a major feature in this chapter. But two disciples get lots of their time, actually. There's Peter, firstly, lots of their time. And frankly, I, I like Peter. I don't know about you. I'm sure you pick it up from the way that I speak about him. I like Peter. I'd wash Peter's feet. That'd be fine. Uh, it's, it's Peter, after all. To be fair, um, Peter uh, is put in his place by Jesus at the end of the chapter as a flawed individual who will betray Jesus, who will disown Jesus uh, three times before the night is out. Verse 38, will you really lay down your life for me, Peter? Oh, the bravado. I tell you the truth, before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. No, no, Peter is a deeply flawed human being, And I suspect as Jesus repeatedly was predicting his own betrayal time and again, Peter probably was a lot like us. He knew that he had a heart that would wander. Is it going to be me? Am I going to be unfaithful to my Lord? I've got a heart that can lapse. I've got a heart that needs washing. We've just seen that. Peter knows that about himself. But what I struggle, friends, to come at with any sense of peace in this passage is the fact that from beginning to end, Judas was part of the mob whose feet Jesus washed here in John 13. Did you realise that on the way through? And Jesus knew it. Uh, Look back up to verse 2 if you've got your Bible on your lap there. Verse 2, the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Down at verse 11, halfway down there, can you see that? Verse 11, for he knew, Jesus knew who was going to betray him. He knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Now, verse 18, where we're up to, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I've chosen, but this is to fulfil the scripture. uh, And that's the Psalm 41 quote. He who shares my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And you know, meals were so important back in those days. It spoke of togetherness, to eat with someone, unity, uh, partnership. To share a meal. He who has shared my bread lifted up his heel against me. So then into the final movement in our passage. Verse 21. Come with me here, please. Um, Take a look at this with me. Verse 21. After he'd said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them He meant one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John referring to himself, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Now, just, I suspect John didn't get a chance. Look how quickly things move here. I suspect John didn't get a chance to relay the answer like the code, back to Peter so that Peter... John is the only one in the know at this point in the story. Uh, Verse 26, keep reading there. Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I'll give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. And down at verse 30, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. The host at a feast, uh, this is Don Carson commenting on the culture back then, the host at a feast 
might well dip into a common bowl and pull out a particularly tasty bit and pass it to a guest, get this, as a mark of honour and friendship. So folks, why have I got so little peace with this particular aspect of this passage that Judas was there? This fact that Jesus washed Judas's feet, that Judas was part of the meal, that Judas received the bread of friendship and honour right at the very moment that he resolved to finally betray my Jesus unto death. Because friends, how on earth do I learn to love like my Lord Jesus loved? Perhaps we're too accustomed to basically think of the love of Jesus as a love for the lovable. You know, and I struggle enough to bite my tongue sometimes, even with my own children. You know, I shouldn't have to do this or clean that or say this so many times. I find it hard to do that. But from this meal, friends, let us remember this Christ's love was not for the lovable, but for the profoundly unlovely and unlovable. The disowner in Peter who would deny him three times, I don't even know him. For the betrayer, Judas. Um, Now, yes, his love is only savingly effective for the elect, but the point is, number one, I don't know who the elect are, so I don't get to sort of draw those lines so neatly, but number two, the elect are not the elect because they are lovely, they are lovely because they are the elect and they are washed. And they're on a journey, even now, on the way to being cleaned up in practice by Jesus. How are we faring, brothers and sisters, at loving the unlovable? You know, if I was a fly on the wall, if we were a fly on the wall at your place, heard you speaking about him or her, you know, the one that you have such a hard time mustering a sense of fondness for, and maybe for good reason... If we had a window on your mind, you know, what thoughts and grudges do we feed and cultivate and allow to fester and chew over some more? Please hear me, I'm not talking about whitewashing sin or pretending away flaws or... uh, Jesus didn't pretend it away, but he did love, didn't he? He did love and he did stoop. And as we're going to see, he did die for the world. Would we? For him or for her? Would we lift a finger? Folks, as we move towards a conclusion, it sounds like, and I reckon it must have sounded like to the disciples at the time, actually, it sounds like Jesus is changing gear. Uh, From verse 31 uh, and onwards, he's changing topic, right? Judas is gone. Ah, now we can talk about something a little bit lighter and happier from verse 31, it really does. So verse 31, have a look with me there. When he was gone, when Judas was gone, Jesus said, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Glory and wonder in the Father and the Son. It's marvellous now that Judas is gone. What has glory got to do with giving bread to your betrayer or washing the feet of people who are frankly beneath you? But friends, this is the lesson that we've got to learn, don't we? As we look upon the full extent of Christ's love for our world, Christ's glory 
will be seen by our world when we love like Christ loved. That's it, isn't it? Think about our context, your relationships, the world that we're in. Christ's glory will be seen in our world when we love like Christ loved. When we love the unlovely and the unlovable, when we learn to love like we've been loved. Verse 34, a new command I give you. He hasn't changed topic at all, has he? Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. How about we ask God for his help in this? Dear God in heaven, there are times when we are acutely aware of our need to be washed, our failings, the the blow-ups that happen in life, uh, the dysfunction in our relationships here or there, those honest assessments that we have from time to time about our standing before you, our attitude toward you who has loved us so graciously. God in heaven, thank you for the full extent of Christ's love for us. Thank you, Father, that you are teaching us even now, yes, to put that kind of love into practice. But first, God, we want to thank you that you have washed us, that Christ has washed away our sin, our self-interest, our opposition to you, our rebellion, our own sense that Um, that we are better and that others are beneath us. Uh, Dear God in heaven, thank you that you've washed that guilt away and Lord, please, increasingly by your spirit, would you wash away those attitudes, that sense of entitlement, those habits and ways of speaking and acting. Uh, Would you wash them away from our lives in practice? Father, we, um, we think specifically now of people who we have a really hard time mustering a sense of fondness and compassion toward and we ask, Lord God, would you please do what seems impossible in us at the moment? Uh, would you please grant us Christ-like love toward them? And God, as we learn this, yes, we, we pray for your glory in the world. We pray that people may know us to be your disciples because by your spirit we're learning to love one another. Father, we, um, each of us can no doubt think of people in our lives who would so benefit from that kind of love, from realising your love toward them in Christ. And we pray through our actions, yes, also through our words, may we be a beacon that points to Christ for them, perhaps even this week. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.